Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Money has been paid out in every single kidnapping case I've been involved in. By and large, it's a business transaction, which is why the transferability of some of this stuff into business is so relevant because they have something we want and we have something they want and we need to enter into negotiation with both sides, feel as if they've got enough for them to walk away from the table feeling successful. Now, if you're the family of a hostage, you're not going to see it as a business transaction, but ultimately that's what it comes down to. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a podcast for you to relax, drift off, and allow your mind to wander. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and researcher on a mission to share information that will help you live happier, healthier, and with more love, optimism, and wisdom. This podcast features interviews with well-known guests and world-leading experts about what it truly means to be human and what we can do to become the very best versions of ourselves. On today's podcast, I have a fascinating guest. I am interviewing Scott Walker, one of the world's most experienced kidnap negotiators. Scott Walker has resolved more than 300 cases using his negotiation skills, and for the first time, he's able to share his techniques to help you. Scott spent 16 years as a Scotland Yard detective engaged in covert counterterrorism and kidnapping operations. He left to support organizations, government departments, and private individuals to negotiate hostage releases all around the world. He has written a fantastic book, a Sunday Times best-selling author called Order Out of Chaos, that contains his well-thought-through, tried-and-tested tips to being better at negotiating. It shares a new approach to succeeding when failure is not an option, and it's brilliant. Think how many conversations we go into daily where we are obviously negotiating or sometimes not obviously negotiating, and when you're losing a negotiation, whether you realize it or not, how stressful that can feel. Well, thankfully, Scott's work can help you. I'm excited for you to hear this interview because he really gives such practical takeaways, things that we can all use in our daily lives, in the conversations we have, to keep them harmonious, to ensure we reach a conclusion that both parties feel good about and to, as I said before, reduce those stress levels, which, let's be honest, is always a good thing. Would you mind sharing a piece of writing that resonates with you? Yeah, sure. It's a piece of writing. It's a quotation I came across when I was 18 years old. So what, 30 years or so uh, I've had this. It's about success. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, 
to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition. To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. By Ralph Waldo Emerson. Wow. Speechless. What a beautiful poem. Why did that resonate with you at such a young age? Well, it was, it was actually in the book that I picked up at the time in, in a bookstore in Birmingham in England. And it's a book called Unlimited Power. I've got it here. I've still got the copy here by a certain Anthony Robbins. And it's a quotation at the front of the book. And it just really resonated. And at the time, I didn't really think too much of it. It's like one of these things, it's only years later when you look back and the stepping stones are clearly marked on your journey as to why your life has taken the path it has done. And everything about it just really resonates, that it's not about the flash cars and the nice houses, as nice as those are, actually, it's being able to achieve things at a far more fulfilling and deeper level, really. And I think at a young age, it's actually quite unusual to consider what true success means and what that might look like because we're so impressionable by culture, mm. which kind of tells us the opposite. You know, in this world, we overpraise the things that really aren't spoken about in that poem and those virtues that feel in some perspective could be simple, but yet the most profound. When have you felt most successful in your life? There's been lots of occasions, really, both on a personal level, it's seeing your kids do something well or overcome some obstacle or challenge themselves. And you think, do you know what? I've, I've played a tiny part in that somehow. I've had an influence in that. And then, of course, you know, professionally, when hostages are released, when we've overcome massive amounts of challenges and issues and things not going according to plan and and anything you can you can think of going wrong and it still works out then you think today's a good day it seems to put everything else in perspective i mean i mean this quotation at the time it didn't have the same impact as it does now because obviously i've got 30 years worth of life experience as the lens through which to interpret that and other ways of what success means and what it doesn't for me personally What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? Never take it for granted. Every day is a blessing. And, and so now every day I'm just grateful that I get to wake up and, you know what, I get another 24 hours to give this, this game of life another go and just do my best. Have you always had that perspective of kind of, wow, I'm grateful that I'm alive? Or do you think that's come from being in so many life-threatening situations? It's built over the years and having gone through and experience quite a lot of significant emotional events, you could call it that, that have happened, that each time you come out the other side, each time you process the grief, the trauma, whatever it is, you're given like a bit of a superpower. You almost get this little thing that you can top up that actually the next challenge, the next roadblock you come across, actually you find it a bit easier and you have more tools in your, in your toolkit that you can utilize to, to get through. And then it gets to a point where you think, I actually get to choose the meaning I'm going to give everything out and what life is going to mean for me. And I might as well choose wisely. Why do you think you have pursued the life you have? Because it is so unusual, right? <laughs> what 
was it, do you think, about this life path that was for you? Well, it's not something when you sit down with a school's careers officer and they say, okay, Scott, what do you want to do? Well, do you know what? I want to go hunt pirates (laughs) or I want to go and negotiate in the jungle or whatever it is. (laughs) I I think it's having an instinctive drive to serve someone or something bigger than yourself, which is why I joined the police in my early 20s. I was a detective for 16 years. And I know the police get quite a bit of a bad reputation at the moment, sometimes for justifiable reasons, but the vast majority are doing this incredibly courageous job with so much uncertainty and that you're coming across circumstances and people that you can't turn around and run away because you're the last line of defence. And so you're constantly finding ways that you can help people, the people who don't have a voice, the victims, the families, and that world opens up so many opportunities, one of which was obviously kidnapped for ransom and what have you. And I got afforded the opportunity to step into that world, which then opens up another door, which opens up another door. And before you know it, I'm, they're building up a number of these cases over years that have built, given me the experience to where I am now. But it's certainly not one you can map out you know, when you leave school. As a child, were you very curious or, you know, what was your kind of upbringing like for you to even find this path appealing? Yeah, I lost count how many times I got told, do you have to ask why for everything? It was always this curiosity of finding out, you know, what lies behind things. And particularly over the years was what makes people do what they do? Why do we think and feel and act the way we do, particularly in times of stress, anxiety, crisis, change, conflict? And over the last 10, 15 years, I've had this ringside seat Mm. into the human psyche. And it doesn't matter what industry or sector or culture or country or background, there's lots of themes and patterns that show up. And I was witnessing all of this playing out, which then ended up prompted me to write the book. In terms of going back to the original question around upbringing, it was a, one hand, it was was a very strict upbringing, but also a very loving one as well. One where we're encouraged to take responsibility, personal responsibility, and there's consequences to our actions. Um, And so there's an element of self-reliance and independence instilled in me and my brother and sister, which obviously stood me in good stead (laughs) many years later, really. If an alien was to come down to Earth and sit you down and say, Scott, you have witnessed the human psyche in so many different places and environments, as you just said, you've had this front row seat to look inside the human psyche at maybe some of the most life-threatening situations, the most fearful situations, the most joyful situations. How do you understand the human psyche? What unites us and what differentiates us? I think we all want the same or similar things. It's just how we get them that differs. Like you and I both want a bit of certainty in our lives. We both want some adventure. But what that means for you is going to mean it's something different to me, which is why you and I can experience exactly the same set of circumstances and situation. One of us is going to get stressed out and it's the end of days where the other one gets really excited and think, oh, great, what an opportunity here to, I've always wanted to do this. So we all we we, tell you, we we all want similar things, but we differ on how we're going to get there. I think. So, do you believe in nature or nurture? 
because you know why were you really curious was do you think that was just your kind of soul's journey or actually taught I think it's a bit of both in terms of I mean personality I mean this is getting quite deep I guess in the psychology around it I think there's an element of genetics in terms of things being passed on to you you know maybe some previous traumas that have come through you that have been passed on but also I think some of the, the the upsides, the good stuff comes through and then it depends on your immediate environment, doesn't it, growing up? You know, are you exposed to things and experiences and how are you communicated with and treated as a child particularly and how that impacts you as an adult? I know one of your previous guests was Gabor Mate, you know, a huge fan of his. And he explains, doesn't he, how those early years have such a profound impact on us as adults. I guess the reason I ask the question is because you write about a couple of individuals who mm. were kidnapped and some of them were left in solitary confinement for years mm-hmm. and they survived. But I don't think everybody who would be kidnapped would mentally survive that level of torture. So when you've met these people that have survived the worst possible circumstances ever, what differentiates between them and what have you noticed within those individuals and what do you think we can learn from them? And is it learned behavior or is it just these guys would just happen to be extraordinary individuals? Okay, I think there's elements of both again. You can learn this stuff and what the stuff you can learn is the ability that you get to choose in every single moment the meaning you're going to give something. You know, and it's the... um, Viktor Frankl, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, I know that's quoted a lot around how, you know, between the stimulus that happens, the situation, the comment, you're getting kidnapped, the car crash, whatever it is, there's a moment, there's a gap where you get to choose, okay, well, what meaning am I going to give this now? And no matter how right or wrong or good or bad you may think it is, you still get to choose, and then you get to choose your response as opposed to just reacting in some kind of knee-jerk reaction. Most of us, if not all of us, start out that way where we do have this emotional reaction to things, which is why people fly off the handle so much. Yet the more we can develop this ability to just pause, to take control of that gap, then we go, you know, take, we take a deep breath or we stand up or we go outside or whatever we do, and then we can come back in and we can then re-engage far more objectively, far more rationally, yeah, deliberately. Would you mind sharing some of the stories of these, you know, particular individuals and how they did survive solitary confinement and maybe what we could learn from these stories? Yeah, well, probably the two most famous ones I mentioned in the book around Terry Waite, who worked for the Archbishop of Canterbury, who got kidnapped in the Middle East, and then there was a US fighter pilot got shot down in in Vietnam. And both of them shared lots of similarities, as in, funny enough, did the people I ended up debriefing as well, the hostages I ended up speaking to. They knew that they could get beaten up, they could get tortured, they could get deprived of things, but their mind was theirs. And there was no way, and, and they had this resolute determination that I could be in here for the next five years, as indeed they were, some of them, and I'm still going to actually keep control of my mind as best I can. Now, I'm not saying, nor did they say, that it was just a bed of roses because there was no false positivity. You know, we're going to be home by Christmas. Mm. 
it, and this is where sometimes people can trip over the false positivity side of things mm. or, or the toxic positivity. What we're saying here is it's a reality check. And for these people, I'm stuck in a prison. I'm stuck in the jungle somewhere. I have absolutely no idea when I'm going to get released. However, I can do nothing about it right now, apart from stay focused, stay positive, stay engaged in my mind. And that's why Terry Waite, for example, he wrote his best-selling book, Whilst Held in Captivity. John Glenn, the Air Force pilot, absolutely mapped out every inch, square inch of his dream home. And then when he got released, he built that home and lived in it. And Terry Waite then went on to publish his book. Some people, I guess, have that instinctive ability to do that anyway. And for those that have that less so, you can train it, as, as, as described, by just learning in the everyday side of things to really learn to catch yourself in the moment and, where possible, change the meaning or use a reframe or ask better questions to save yourself going down that negative loop, you know, that spiral where we get stuck in a story. So... Let's go into some of the tools you share in the book. What mind tools or what mind practices do you, for example, practice on a regular basis to develop this mental strength? Over time, I've tweaked and tested and adjusted pretty much every school of thought on this, or whatever, which now works for me. And so every day I make sure I build or continue to build that foundation so i call it the three m's every day i move my body whether or not that's just doing a bit of mobility work yoga going for a walk particularly anything that moves my body to get the energy going the second piece is a meditation practice and that can mean whatever you want it to mean but for me it's being able to sit still quietly without any distractions and then just being able to develop that focused awareness. And then the third piece is around mindset. So I'll listen to a podcast, I'll read a book for half an hour, whatever. And I really find just doing that every day makes a huge amount of difference. Even if I only got five minutes, I'll do a scaled back version of that. So I may move my body for a minute, I may meditate for a minute, I may read for a minute, and then I maybe do something else. And what's that? what that's done, it then means... When I, somebody cuts me up in traffic, for mm. example, or the kids don't do as they're told, or there's some ego-driven client who's just speaking in a really un unprofessional, rude way, I don't get triggered as easy or as quickly or as powerfully as I might have done otherwise. It's the small steps, the consistent practice that builds that neuroplasticity over time that then helps when the, you know, the bigger stuff comes in and I always remember when I first started doing it I got to a point where thinking do you know what I don't need to practice today I've got this I've got it, everybody I'm all right I'm, I'm good come on give it to me and another day will go by I think oh, I'm all right I'm in a good place I don't need to do any of this and another day and before you know two or three weeks go by and then something happens and it knocks you off and then you find these old patterns coming out and you think ah oh, that's why I need to practice every single day to keep this where it needs to be. Small steps, small steps every day. Small steps. So you open the book writing, these days it seems everybody is shouting, but no one is listening to other people's viewpoints. 
there has never been a more pressing need for you to improve your negotiation and leadership skills. I'd love just for you to talk about that. Yeah, I, I think you don't have to go very far today, do you, to look where nobody's actually taking the time to listen to what the other person or the other side, let's call it, is saying. Mm. And it's so powerful if you can just stop, park your own ego, park your own mindset, your own beliefs just for one second and really listen to what the other person is saying. Because often there's lots of stuff underneath or behind what they're saying, you know, what their real needs and wants are. And actually, if you take the time to listen, suspend the judgment, you can actually hear what it is they're really, really after. And then you can help them meet that if you want to. But no one's, no one's given each other the time at the moment. And I think it's because we seem to have become pretty poor at emotionally self-regulating as well. Mm. Literally, you see it online or in public, people are just getting irate and as if their blood vessels are going to burst. And you think, right, everybody just needs to take a couple of deep breaths here and sit down. And then, as I talk about in the book, is if I can empathize with another person, and I had to empathize with kidnappers all the time. Now, I've got nothing in common with them. I don't share their worldview, their beliefs, their values, yet they still need to feel safe, seen, heard, and understood, and I need to do that. And it's even more powerful when you can do that with somebody who you don't share anything with. And it's so powerful because then they go, oh, yeah, Poppy gets me. She understands where I'm coming from. Now I'm more open to having a dialogue, having a conversation where both ideas, both viewpoints can be shared. I read that bit when you were talking about how you have to suspend your ego. And, you know, as you just said, you've got nothing in common with kidnappers. It'd be the first person you'd get so angry with because they've just done some horrific, mm. unhumane action of taking someone and potentially torturing them. So how do you suspend your ego? How do you put your viewpoint of the world aside in order to make someone else who you passionately disagree with feel seen and heard? It's that golden rule, that cliche of cliches where it's not about you. You know, first seek to understand before being understood. If I go in there going, right, Mr. Kidnapper, mm. let me tell you how it's going to be. They're just going to laugh and not engage, or they're going to threaten or harm the hostages. Whereas it's not about acquiescing or giving into, or even supporting what anyone else is doing on the other side of the, the argument. It's really just about thinking, well, until I can understand, until I can step into their world, only then do I earn the right to then go about trying to influence and persuade and bring about cooperation? Because otherwise, the judgment is going to leak out in my voice, in my energy, and they're going to pick up on that. And that doesn't matter whether or not you're in a, in a kidnap negotiation across a business negotiation table or in the family home with your partner or your kids. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is a red center? A red center, it's a couple of things. The main... Where it comes from is, particularly within law enforcement, it's a place where it's the hub, the nucleus, the center where the negotiations take place. So there's lots of emotion, there's lots of skills and techniques and mindset brought to that to bring, funny enough, order out of chaos, which is where the title of the book comes from. So it was, it's a physical space that happens. But over time, I was seeing that actually the people who are good at this the hostages who not only survive but thrive, the negotiators are really good at it, at doing their job, the families who can keep their calm. They have this place within them that no matter what is going on outside of them, the overwhelm, the tsunami, whatever it is, they can somehow bring this sense of calmness and certainty within themselves and they tap into all the abilities that we all have as human beings to actually bring about a solution rather than drowning in a pity party or a story or negativity that's not going to succeed for anybody. As you said, it, I, I feel like there's an overarching theme of this. How do you stay calm when you're in a red center, when there's total chaos around you? And it kind of brings me to think in the home, right? You know, sometimes mm. the most emotional arguments can be with the people that we love the most. You know, do you have any practical tips to stay calm when you're trying to collect information? And also, what are your suggestions for questions that helps you to, you know, utilize your golden rule, which is seek to understand before being understood? The listening is the first piece to all of this. And again, sometimes we just want to be, we just want to vent. Some people just want to vent. Mm. They want to be heard. They don't want to fix it particularly in the home, and I've learned the hard way when I've tried to fix my partner's challenges or problems or issues she brings to me, she's not looking for that. So it's about listening, not trying to fix things. And then there's some tools and techniques such as around you can paraphrase or you can summarize back what you've heard, either in your language and your words or theirs, so they understand and think, oh, yeah, Scott actually gets me. He knows where I'm, he can see where I'm coming from from here. And there's the, the more well-known things like mirroring. You know, you can mirror back the last two or three words. And if it's done with proper sensory acuity, it can be really powerful. Where it falls foul is when you sound like a, a robot just repeating things over and over again. Can we maybe do an example? An example? Yeah. Maybe I will pretend that I've just kidnapped. Not that I have a gardener because I don't have a garden, but let's have just kidnapped my gardener. <laughs> Okay, so you, so uh, let's set a bit of context here. So you, you we're now on the phone. Mm -hmm. You've kidnapped your gardener, yeah. and you're demanding some 
money. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. So I'll pick up. My- Hello? Hello? Hi, I've got your gardener. Yeah, okay. Can we speak to him, please? No, I want $10,000. $10,000? That's a lot of money. You know we're a poor family. If you want to see him again, you've got to give us the money. Yeah, we will try to get as much money as possible, but you must look after him. We will look after him if you go and get the money. Okay. How do we know he's alive? Okay, I will hold the phone and I will tell him to say something to you so you know he's alive. Are you alive? Do you hear that? He's alive, he's talking. Okay, thank you. Really appreciate that, Poppy. All right. And so let's speak again, maybe tomorrow, and we'll see what we can do. But you must look after him. Will you promise you're going to look after him and take care of him? Yes, we will take care of him until you get the money. Okay, we'll we'll do our very best. Let's speak tomorrow. Well, this phone will be on about two o'clock tomorrow, okay? Okay. What I've done there, I've taken control of the negotiation. Interesting. Because I've placated you. I've, I've not said, no, you're not going to get 10,000. I said, it's a lot of money. We're going to do what we can. So I want to buy time. I've got proof of life. So I know you've got him. I'm getting you to agree to lots of stuff. And I'm now imposing a call window on you, which means I can switch my phone off and we can go for beers and whatever if we wanted to, not that we would do, uh, between now and two o'clock. And you're now making a, a declaration that you're going to look after him. So psychologically, you're invested in this and you're promising you're going to look after him. And so I guess it just depends through this little role play. What is the, what is it you want to get from this? What, what do you want? What's the outcome you want from this really? Interesting. So if we were going to then translate this into just a general argument, what you've just shown is actually it wouldn't be successful just telling someone no. If someone is asking you for something, the worst thing you can do in this moment is just to point blank shut someone down saying no. I've never used the word no in a, in a negotiation. Wow. Yeah. And, and I think in the, let's say in a, in a ho- in the home mm. where my daughter wants to go to a party, my teenage daughter wants to go to a party or wants some loads more money or she wants this or that, then I'm going to use some more of these active listening skills. I'm going to find out what is it about the party, you know, but then I'm going to use maybe some mirroring. Rather than sound like an interrogation, it encourages the other person to talk. So say if it's in a stressful and an an anxiety scenario, I want the other person to talk because the more they can talk, the more they can kind of bring down their – it's balancing out the nervous system. Mm. You know, we want the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system to settle down. And objective, rational thinking only comes about when the irrational anxiety comes down. So say, for example, a toddler in a supermarket wants some sweets. The parent goes, no, you can't because you're going to have dinner when you get home. The toddler has a paddy. All the common sense, all the rational, all the soothing talk is not going to work. All the, all the arguments, why you can't have some sweets, is not going to work until, and, and I'll put a diagram in the book, we've balanced out that, that seesaw. Make sense? Absolutely. I always find that totally fascinating, this idea that 
we cannot think in our most wise way when we're stressed. It's just two completely different parts of the brain that compete with each other. And it's just so easy to forget that. I know we've covered some of the points, but what is your three-step process to win negotiating? A three-step process to win at negotiating is, first of all, it's about mindset. You've got to go in with the mindset of, I need to be able to understand the other person's model of the world. What are their needs? What are their wants? What drives them? The second point is around emotional self-regulation. If you get anxious, if you get stressed, if you get angry, if you start shouting and losing your cool, Mm. it's not going to end well. Mm. And then the third step is around really being able to seek out the worthy opponents. And what I mean by worthy opponents is every day is littered with opportunities for you to practice this. Whether or not it's with somebody in a shop, whether or not it's a neighbor, a colleague, somebody on the, on the bus or the train, practice this when it, the stakes are pretty low. Because sure as anything, the big stuff comes along. But if you can practice this, if you can practice managing your emotions, if you can practice empathetic listening and reassuring people and understanding what makes them tick, then you can bring about far more influence and persuasion and ultimately bring about cooperation at the end. But you've got to earn the right to do it first, which is why we do those techniques at the beginning. And what sort of questions do you often use you know is it is it kind of as simple as oh can you tell me why you think this or is that too direct that's a closed question so i'd always want to start off with open questions Mm -hmm. so tell me or how what or not really why but if i can certainly come up with a how question or what question it gets you to do all the heavy lifting it gets you to have to really think deep so for example if we're talking about kidnapping I'm going to put it to the kidnappers. Well, how do you want us to get the money to you? Like physically, literally, how are we, and what denominations and in what kind of bag and what have you? And again, those questions, it saves you having to come up with the answers and actually makes it like a realistic thing to consider for the other person, whether or not it's in a domestic setting or in a business negotiation. So these what and how questions really force in a way to the person to to think deeply about what is they want, why they want it, and how they're going to get it. Often, you know, there is no money. The money will, would never, ever be able to be given. And so even if you know that their demand can never be met, how far do you entertain it? Money has been paid out in every single kidnapping case I've been involved in. Really? It happens pretty much... Occasionally, there may be a political thing to it, like a prisoner exchange or some kind of community issue in the tribal or the hill somewhere. But by and large, it's a business transaction, which is why the transferability of some of this stuff into business is so relevant, because they have something we want and we have something they want. And we need to enter into negotiation where both sides feel as if they've got enough for them to walk away from the table feeling successful. Now, if you're the family of a hostage, you're not going to see it as a business transaction. But ultimately, that's what it comes down to. The one thing you talk about 
is that there is a lot of myths behind successful negotiating and a lot of kind of advice people may have heard in the past actually doesn't really work nowadays. What are some of the most ridiculous things you often hear when people are talking about how to negotiate well and how do you like to kind of re-pivot and re-educate people around this? Chris Voss wrote a great book, Never Split the Difference. You know, the former mm-hmm. FBI negotiator is done some great work in terms of taking the playbook, so to speak, and making it applicable for so many people. And it's true what he says there around, if I've got six hostages and the deal is, well, yeah, we'll release three of them, I'm not going to leave three of them in there. So it is about finding a way that actually, no, no, let's not meet in the middle. We're not going to split this halfway. We're not going to do that. And so often that is... That's one of the myths. Another myth is that you have to kind of hardball it. You know, it's all about the hard close, Mm. you know, in terms of sales, really got to get this over the line. It's like, well, actually, beware of, you know, the buyer's remorse. You know, what what you want is somebody to come back to you Mm. time and time and time again because they enjoy doing business with you. Some of the best negotiators out there, they're just really likable people. And, and people underestimate the likability factor, not just in negotiation or in business, but in life generally. You know, you're far more likely to be in a relationship with somebody, be friends with somebody because you like them and you like being with them. And so it is trying to find, I guess, a common ground, but also you've got your own boundaries and your standards and your values, which you're not going to give. And that, we wouldn't give that on a negotiation, for example. How do you think people can make themselves more likable and versed commas, more charming? Because I I do actually think that people lack a ton of charm when it is like a free thing that people can have. Like it doesn't cost any money to be charming. And yet everybody loves to spend time with someone who's, as you said, likable, charming, whatever word you want to use it. I think it's one of those things where if you get out of your own way, it's not a script you need to follow. Mm. It's not a series, okay, things you can just tick off on a checklist. And it's about bringing lots of curiosity and openness to the conversation to be likable. But you need to genuinely want to, like I genuinely need to find out or want to find out as much as I can about you so I can get to know you. Mm. Now, if I come across as being right, question three, question four, <laughs> question right. five, you're going to think, what, what's all this about? But if I've got a genuine curiosity, to find out, okay, well, what's your journey about? What's your life about? What do you enjoy? What don't you enjoy? And that comes across. And if you're genuinely interested in what they've got to say, then I think people can pick up. You can, you can pick up, can't you, when people are being genuine and when people are just going through the motions, particularly in a maybe a sales type environment. Yeah, it's so true. And you can really tell when someone's being honest as well. You know, when someone says, honestly, don't buy that. It's just really not worth your money or something. And you're like, even if they're lying, you're like, thank you. Thanks for caring about me not buying something that isn't worth the money. But, you know, when you suggest something else, then (laughs) I'm so gullible. So yes. (laughs) And I think it's transparency Mm. and authenticity is key. It's a game with kidnappers. I'm going to be relatively transparent with them. I'm not going to lie to them. I'm never, ever going to lie to them because it could just backfire. So I'm not going to lie in in any other form of negotiation or communication. So if people can feel that you are trustworthy and you're credible in what you're saying and why you're saying it and they believe you and they trust you, 
and there's transparency in what you're saying, as much as you can say. The other thing that helps as well in terms of building that likability and, again, bringing about cooperation, whether or not it's buying and selling a car or a house or negotiating a multi-million-dollar deal or finding the partner of your dreams, really. An example this morning, I got so annoyed. I think they'd mm. kind of shut one tube that I needed to get on because I had to get to a meeting on time. And for whatever reason, they were like, no, you can't come this way. And I could feel myself getting really riled up. And as a consequence, I kind of probably said, oh, this is just ridiculous and kind of turned around. But I realized I kind of lost that negotiation because I reckon mm. had I negotiated I would have been able to kind of get past these barriers, get on the tube I wanted and, you know, happy days. And it's because I was annoyed and I was frustrated and then got angry with the person telling me no. That is not very mindful. That's, <laughs> that's the opposite of what this podcast encourages people to do. But look, we're human. I had a human moment. What would you mm. have advised I did in that moment not to just get too annoyed too early and then as a consequence, I lost? And that happens a lot for all of us. You know, we all have those moments where we really kind of question our, um, our ability there. But I call it the immediate action drill in the book, where the first step really is you've got to interrupt your pattern. Mm. You've got to train yourself that if you, I'm about to open my mouth and I know it's going to be just a verbal shotgun coming straight at this person. <laughs> it's somehow, think of some ridiculous kids cartoon show or cartoon voice or whatever it is just to interrupt your pattern and then crucially rather than pretend it hasn't happened it's about going in and feeling really feeling because there'll be a tension in your shoulders or a churning in your stomach or something at the time and if you can develop that awareness of oh hang on I can feel that it's feel the feeling and drop the story doesn't matter why you're feeling it for now just feel it and the more you can then feel it, it then dissipates. After about 90 seconds is how long all these drugs are pumping around our body. And then after that, the third step is asking better questions. Because if you try and ask the, the questions in the heat when you're stood in the fire, you're not going to really listen to them. So if you can interrupt the pattern, allow the feeling to subside, and then you ask a better question, such as, I don't know, what am I missing here? Or what else could this mean? Or what's the opportunity? Or some kind of empowering question that lifts you out of that negative loop. And then you can put a smile on your face and go about your day and go, well, do you know what? I'm going to take a different route. And then who knows? You may bump into somebody that you wouldn't have normally mm. bumped into. You may walk across a, an advert, the side of the tube for something that you've been looking for for ages and you've suddenly just found it. And who knows? So it's that three-step process of interrupt the pattern, mm. feel the feeling and drop the story, and then ask really empowering questions of yourself. So you obviously, you know, one of the world leading experts at negotiation. Is there any situations that still catch you out now or are you pretty good at applying what you teach in every situation? The people have really managed to still get me to step up to the next level as much as possible is my kids because they've <laughs> they've grown up with this now and they they can see every trick and just trying to get them to go to bed or get off their phones and I deploy everything the whole arsenal at them and they just go oh yeah you're doing that aren't you you're doing that bit you're doing that bit yeah hey life gives you all these opportunities to practice and practice and practice but uh, yeah the, the kids are certainly uh, up there with uh, 
you know, some really difficult negotiations, that's for sure. Who's given you the most useful advice in your life and what was that advice? I don't know who said it, but it was around, someone said to me ages ago, was that the power's in the reframe. I think I, I was going through a bit of a you know, tough patch before I got into the negotiation side of things. And, and they just said, do you know what? I know, you, I know you're going through this tough patch at the moment, but the power does lie in the reframe. If you can somehow see an empowering future, if you can see a light at the end of this, and when you get out there, you can look back. And this whole experience, if you can reframe it into a positive, mm. you'll have a whole different feeling about it. It'll have a whole different emotional hold over you. And that was really powerful. And so it is, I know it can be a cliche around, it's not a bed of roses for sure, but actually you can still take you know, the empowering stuff out of it. And it just gives you a better quality of life, better emotions. And what life event has taught you the most about yourself? The death of my mom, actually, she tragically took her own life. And that was a real eye-opener. Because at the time, I was going off all over the world, saving lots of lives. Yeah, I couldn't save the one life that really mattered. And for me, that was a wake-up call that, you know, every single day, every single day, I'm going to be so grateful Mm. for this life. I get to, which is why I mentioned at the beginning, Mm. was I'm not going to waste a single moment. Because so many people went to bed last night thinking they're going to wake up this morning, but didn't. Mm. And so that was a real life lesson for me. And again, the reframe in that was actually life is beautiful. There's so much out there to go out and enjoy. And I say to my kids all the time, all this stuff will get thrown at you as you walk through life. But you've just got to get up and just get out there. And there's no point hiding away. It's just maximize and enjoy it as much as possible. And so, yeah, I guess that's the, one of those key lessons for me. Well, what a really touching end to this interview. And thank you so much for sharing that event because it really puts a lot into perspective. And thank you for this wonderful interview. I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, I'm giggling to myself that I've that I've kidnapped a gardener still. Um, <laughs> Is he back? Have we released him? Have we, have we, uh, have we got you, him back? I think, I think we've released him. I think with all the tools, we've released him. Where's the best place for people to find you and obviously find the book? Probably the website is the best place, which is scottwalkerbooks.co.uk. And there people can get hold of the book and sign up to a monthly newsletter where I incorporate, you know, some of these tools and techniques that some are in the book, some are not in the book. And that's a way of keeping in touch and finding out what's going on. Brilliant. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Scott, for being on The Unwind. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you. So do shoot me a message on Instagram. Send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.